calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Uh, hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute. Joining me is Greg Davies. He is co-author of Behavioral Investment Management, an Efficient Alternative to Modern Portfolio Theory. Uh, Greg is also Head of Behavioral and Quantitative Investment Philosophy at Barclays Wealth. Greg, what is behavioralizing finance and how does classical finance fit in? Well, a lot of what you hear about behavioral finance, a lot of what you read about it in the press, uh, tends to have this, this, this context where it's, it's portraying behavioral finance as somehow being in opposition to classical finance. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's behavioral finance versus classical finance, and that got, that got accentuated through the financial crisis where people started questioning a lot of the classical finance models. We feel that uh, that opposition is not particularly useful or constructive. Mm -hmm. um, the, the principles at the heart of the classical models are still completely valid. Long-term investing, trade-off between risk and return, mm -hmm. the principles of diversification. So when we think about behavioral finance, honestly, we shouldn't be thinking, how do we seek to replace classical finance? Right. We should be thinking, how do we seek to behavioralize classical finance? Mm -hmm. So it's not a case of, let's sweep all the classical models under the carpet. In fact, quite the reverse. That's Let's use them, let's put them center stage. Mm -hmm. But what they've done is they've not gone far enough. Right. They've, they've said, here is a solution for a rational individual, but they've left out really a large part of what it is to be an investor, which is to be human, mm -hmm. to, to have emotional responses to the market, to have a, a, a need for financial objectives. So by behavioralizing finance, what we're seeking to do is to take the classical model and then push it that stage further and say, let's use that mm -hmm. as the core, and let's figure out what we can do in order to make our solutions more applicable to real human beings, to real investors. So talking about sort of applications then, what are the implications of your research for the wealth management industry? Uh, specifically, um, how can practitioners put this to use? Well, I think the large failing of the wealth management industry over the last 50 years, mm -hmm. indeed the failing of classical finance and economics uh, academics for the last 50 years has been this. It's been to say, we are going to produce for you a portfolio that we deem to be efficient. It's mathematically efficient. It trades off risk and return in a, an efficient way. It's the perfect portfolio if you're a rational individual. So we're going to make it your problem, whether you're a rational individual or not. Here's your portfolio. If you fail to invest properly, if you fail to stick with it through the ups and downs of the investment cycle, that's not our problem as an industry, mm -hmm. that's your problem as the investor. And this frankly is, is washing our hands of a big part of what it is to be an advisor. What it is to be an advisor should be to get our clients to the right solution in actuality, in reality. Not simply to say, here's a theoretical solution that you need to enact. Mm -hmm. So. 
The implications for the wealth management industry are, are fairly simple. We need to stop thinking in terms of a mathematically appropriate solution for rational individuals. We need to listen to our clients. We need to understand our clients, both their emotional needs as well as their financial needs. And we need to adapt our portfolio solutions to their needs as individuals in holistic ways about their total wealth. And if we do that, then we'll not only make them happier clients, they'll be uh, more comfortable over the course of their investing journey, but because as a result they'll make fewer poor decisions, they'll actually get better outcomes. Hmm. Well, speaking about better outcomes, um, can you explain the zone of anxiety uh, and how advisors can buy emotional comfort for their clients? Yes, so um, part of the problem of these mathematically rational solutions that the industry tends to give to its clients is that they are designed for the long term. Mm -hmm. Now, in one respect, this is entirely right. Uh, most of our financial objectives are indeed long term. We should be designing solutions that serve our clients' long term needs. Mm -hmm. But the problem is this. The problem is none of us live in the long term. Right. We all live here, now, in the present. We all live in what we have called the zone of anxiety. And it's the zone of anxiety because if you look at the risk-return characteristics of the long-term solution, they look pretty comfortable. Mm -hmm. In the long term, we have diversification over time. We have diversification across assets. And in fact, if you can afford to turn off your emotional brain, uh, take a deep breath and just wait for the good returns, mm -hmm. if you're not forced to sell at any point, then in the long term, that's a pretty comfortable place to be. But living through the ups and downs of the market can be a particularly anxious place to be. So part of the whole principle of this use of behavioral finance, of behavioralizing finance, is to recognize that we always live in the zone of anxiety. And we have to help our clients not just attain their long-term goals, but they attain their long-term goals through controlling behavior through the ups and downs of the zone of anxiety at present. So within the context of constructing an optimal investment portfolio, uh, in the book you quote, or you state, uh, it is quite clear that establishing a sound forward-looking view on each asset class is challenging, although it is the only way to outperform markets. Why is this the only way to outperform markets? Actually, I think I'd like to adjust that statement slightly because uh, over short and potentially medium time frames, it's not the only way to outperform mm -hmm. markets. In the short and medium term, you can outperform markets through sheer luck. Mm -hmm. You can outperform markets by putting it all on red and red just happens to come up. But really understanding the risk-return characteristics of the asset classes you're investing in, mm -hmm. how they work together, having a forward-looking view of expected risk, expected return, and expected dependency between these asset classes is the only reliable way over the long term to, to outperform the markets. Otherwise you're either gambling or you're going to underperform the markets because you're incurring fees for something that isn't really grounded on good assessments of the future risk-return trade-offs of assets. Okay. Uh, in your book, you talk about sort of the private banker or wealth advisor as the sort of risk manager for the client. Uh, with regard to risk tolerance, how do most advisors assess uh, risk tolerance and, and why is it problematic? Uh, and perhaps you can touch on a bit about uh, the three different types of risk that you talk about. You have structural risk, emotional risk, and liquidity risk. Okay, let me take the first of those, which uh, I think is extremely important, uh, the assessment of risk tolerance. Now, 
that is not a, necessarily a, a behavioral construct alone. Uh, risk tolerance is part of the classical mm -hmm. finance models. How much risk are you prepared to take in the long term? Right. Therefore, which point on the efficient frontier do you pick? Mm -hmm. In order for us to do that effectively, I mean, and, and that needs to be the starting point right. before we add in all the other behavioral stuff, we need to be able to understand from our clients genuinely what is your long-term willingness to trade off risk in return. Now, many advisors, many banks do this in a very haphazard way. They'll simply ask the client, what is your level of risk tolerance? Sounds perfectly reasonable, but we know from behavioral finance that people are incredibly uh, susceptible to framing effects. It depends on how I ask you that question. It depends on whether you happen to be happy that day. It depends on whether you've had a good breakfast. All manner of things can distort your risk tolerance. For us, it's, it's fundamentally important to assess risk tolerance in an objective way using cutting-edge psychometric techniques to establish something that is genuinely deep-seated and genuinely long-term and genuinely, genuinely stable over the market cycle. It does us no good whatsoever if my test of your risk tolerance indicates that you're very risk tolerant at the top of the market and very unrisk tolerant mm -hmm. at the bottom of the market. All I end up doing is exacerbating your own psychological tendencies to buy high and sell low. So risk tolerance is, is, is fundamental to the, whole play, to, the, to the whole program. And for us, a, a psychometric evaluation is extremely important there. We also psychometrically evaluate clients on five other dimensions of financial personality because that depth of understanding is what allows us to behavioralize finance. To the second question, um, the, the three uh, types of, of risk that are important to clients, um, structural, emotional, and liquidity. So two of them we have approached already. Um, uh, structural risk, I would say, is, is the, the, the logical, the classical, the rational type of risk. What is the risk return trade-off you're prepared to take on in the long term? The emotional risk is all the behavioral distortions and behavioral biases and behavioral variables that lead you to deviate from your rational portfolio along the way because we all have emotional responses to the journey. So mitigating people's knee-jerk emotional responses is an, in effect a form of risk management. You're providing emotional risk management. Uh, the third one, which is, is fundamentally important, is liquidity risk management. Um, most people who sold at the bottom of the market in late 2008, early 2009, didn't do so because they desperately needed the money. They did so because they were emotionally scared, emotionally traumatized. But in times of, emotion, of, of financial turmoil, uh, the worst case scenario is no matter how resilient you are emotionally, you're forced to sell because you haven't looked after your liquidity needs. Mm -hmm. And Keynes said, um, you know, the markets can stay uh, irrational for longer than you can stay solvent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it's, it's no good any of us thinking about long-term structural risk management or short-term emotional risk management if we haven't looked after our liquidity risk management. Great insights. Greg, thank you for joining us today. And to the viewers, thank you for watching today. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.